0: Well, good morning. It's good to see all of you here uh, today. We've just come through the annual New Year's celebrations. No doubt some of you stayed up to watch the New Year arrive. I can remember as a boy uh, thinking how great it would be to watch the clock strike midnight uh, and know that we'd just gone from one year to the next. But that was when I was a boy. Now, not so much. Maybe you like to stay up, don the party hats, watch the ball drop, uh, blow the party blower, sing Auld Lang Syne, uh, light some fireworks, sneak a kiss from your spouse or someone you want to be your spouse, and finally go to bed. Not me. I can't remember the last time I was up till midnight to see the new year. Well, actually I can. It was Y2K. Now, for you kids, you may have read about that in the history books. That's when the year changed from 1999 uh, to 2000. There was lots of hype, many doomsday prognostications. So, yes, many of us stayed up, uh, up till midnight and, the, and found that the lights stayed on, the water still flowed, and we went to bed reminding ourselves we always wanted that generator anyways. <laughs> of course, in the days and weeks... Following January 1st, there, were, there was also lots of backpedaling, uh, not so much those who were saying Y2K could be the end of the world as we know it, but those who were saying that it would be the end of the world. You remember that, especially people in our own Christian circles who then had to make some public admissions to include the authors of Le- the Left Behind series, who the year before Y2K made some pretty bold and frankly errant predictions. Yes, at that time I was concerned about people making bold end times prognostications, concerned uh, that some of them were laughing all the way to the bank, concerned that they were detracting from the credibility um, of the gospel, concerned that some were setting dates when the Scripture clearly uh, forbids us from doing so. But let me tell you another concern I had, and frankly continue to have, that might hit a bit closer to home. And that is the opposite extreme, that the promise of the return of Christ rarely crosses our minds at all. The only dates we're setting are vacation or graduation or wedding or retirement or due dates because we don't really expect Jesus to come in our lifetimes. Just as there were those in Christian circles saying that January 1st would bring the end of the world, there were also those just as confidently saying that it would not bring the end of the world. Because you see, when when it comes right down to it, most of us don't really believe that Jesus is going to come in our lifetimes. Do we? The question is, Do we really want Him to? Think about that. When do we hit the age? You know that magic number when we go from secretly or uh, subconsciously not wanting Him to return to actually wanting Him to. You know what I mean. Early on, we have so much to live for, don't we? Don't come until I graduate from middle school and get out of that mess and make it to high school, the apex of life. That was a disappointment. (laughs) Don't come until after I graduate from college. Don't come until I get a good job and start to experience the good things of life. You know, until I get to achieve the American dream. Don't come until I get married and have kids and have grandkids and retire and enjoy my retirement. Listen, I have saved my whole life to travel, see the world, take it easy, and chase a little white ball around a field. Yeah, that's it. You can come right before I die so I don't have to. That would be grand. But other than that, I kind of like my life just like it is. So maybe if we were honest, we would say the magic number is the year right before we die. My concern is that we are living like the Jews in first century Palestine, who were supposed to be awaiting anxiously the first eagerly, the first coming of the Messiah. You remember that. We just recently talked about it. The wise men arrived from the east saying, where is he who has been born king of the Jews? For we have seen his star. And the Jews responded, well, he's supposed to be born over there in in Bethlehem, but no one went to see. They were more concerned about how far they could walk on Saturday than the fulfillment of the ages, the climax of history. Their faith called them to wait for the Christ, to long for His coming, but their superficial surface religion, hear those words, superficial surface religion, blinded them when it came to pass. Here's my question, are we looking for the star? Meaning, are we eagerly anticipating the second coming, the return of Christ, looking for the signs of His coming? Do we, do we have the attitude of the Apostle John, even so come Quickly, Lord Jesus. The attitude of the Apostle Peter, it's all going to go up in smoke anyway, or the attitude of the Apostle Paul to be absent from the body present with the Lord is better by far. I think COVID demonstrated that we don't really believe that. We live our lives like many religious Jews, then with a superficial relig- religion that has no life-changing effects at all? Here's a, here's a question, serious question for you. If you weren't here this morning, how would your life be any different than your unbelieving neighbor? Remember, we 2,000 years since Jesus left, promising to return, and Peter told us in his second letter that in the last days, mockers would come saying, where is the promise of His coming? For ever since the fathers fell asleep, all continues just as it was uh, from the beginning of creation. Are the scoffers in these last days in the church, are, are we the ones saying, where is the promise of His coming? Again, maybe not verbally, maybe not even consciously, but when is the last time you looked at the eastern sky and thought, is it soon, Lord? with excited anticipation or do you have too much of life to live when is the last time when is the last time you ordered your life as if you expected him to return read through the New Testament, I see an excited anticipation. Sure, I see an early church confused about the return of Christ, not unlike today. But I also see a church that seemed to be consumed with the coming of Christ. Does, Does that describe us? You see... I'm suggesting that there will come a day when the excitement of His return will actually become the necessity, indeed the pleading for His return. What do I I mean? We are finding in the book of Revelation, things will continually get worse and worse and worse. And so John writes to tell us, remain faithful, persevere to the end, because while you will, I know this sounds foreign to us, while you will suffer, in the end our God wins, so wait for, long for His return, and maybe that's our challenge. We're not suffering too much, but we will. I'm not suggesting that we start creating charts that are more complicated to understand than the book of Revelation itself. I'm not suggesting that we start setting Dates We should not. I am suggesting that we start living like New Testament believers who expected and longed for the return of our Savior. And if we did, I believe that it would change the way that we live our lives. We wouldn't, for example, put off talking to people about the claims of Christ. After all, there's no time to waste. We must redeem the time. We wouldn't put off serving our Christ, maybe here in the church, because we we want to be found faithful stewards when He comes. And we wouldn't we wouldn't put off pursuing a deeper, more abiding relationship with Jesus. When Shauna made the announcement about uh, reading the Bible together, that actually inflamed or excited us just a little bit, or, or, or did, did it? We wouldn't put off a deeper, more abiding relationship with Christ because we might just see Him soon, you see. And if we go through the book of Revelation, and it does not change us I. I'm afraid that we've wasted our time. As I suggested last week, we are in the slog of the judgments. It's been a bit of a slog. I know that. We finished the first and second series of judgments, the seven seals, followed by the seven trumpets. The seven trumpet has now um, sounded. But instead of moving right to the seven bold judgments and the glorious return uh, uh, of Jesus, we have another lengthy interlude or two, not unlike the interlude between Christ's first and second. Coming. And, and in these, we find John is, in these interludes in Revelation, we find John is introducing the principal players for the final stage in this unfolding drama. Better, God is sovereignly putting pieces into place to, uh, to bring to completion this age old plan and an end to, listen, to this age old conflict. Of which you have been a part, whether you realize it or not, you are on one side or the other. Age long conflict. We've covered R- Revelation 12 in the last couple of sermons, the, the woman who we found to be the nation of Israel has produced the Christ all according to plan. The dragon who is who is Satan sought to devour the, chi- the child as soon as he was born, but failed at some point post-cross, post-resurrection and post-ascension, Satan and his fallen angels are cast out of heaven. This either happened at the ascension or more likely, I think, will happen in the future right before the end. When he is thrown out of heaven, Satan knows that his time is short. Uh, The the book seems to indicate that it is the last half of that seven-year tribulation. Uh, The last half, some people call the great tribulation, a period of three and a half years, 42 months, 1260 days, a time, times, and a half time. We've seen that over and over. And during that time, frustrated by his failure to destroy the woman, the dragon turns his attention to her children. Who are they? Those who keep the commandments of God and hold to the testimony of Jesus. These are believers in Jesus. Jew and Gentile alike who become the target of Satan's destructive efforts. personally believe it's the church which will still be here. So now, Satan marshals his forces led by his two henchmen, uh, two beasts through whom he will seek to wreak havoc through worldwide domination, political and religious domination. They are the beast that, rise, that rises out of the sea and the beast that rises out of the earth. You may know them, you maybe have heard of them as the Antichrist, the, the political, military leader, and the false prophet, the religious leader. And we read about them in Revelation 13. Today, we'll look at the beast of the sea, the Antichrist, found in verses 1 to 10. Look at that with me. And the dragon, found in chapter 12, that's Satan, stood on the sand of the seashore. Then I saw a beast coming up out of the sea, having ten horns and seven heads, and on his head were ten diadems, and on his heads were blasphemous names. And the beast, which I saw, was like a leopard, and his feet were like those of a bear, and his mouth like the mouth of a lion. And the dragon gave him his power and his throne and great authority. I saw one of his heads as if it had been slain. And his fatal wound was healed, and the whole earth was amazed and followed after the beast. They worshipped the dragon because he gave his authority to the beast, and they worshipped the beast, saying, Who is like the beast, and who is able to wage war with him? (laughs) Great questions. There was given to him a, a mouth speaking arrogant words and blasphemies, and authority to act for 42 months was given to him. And he opened his mouth in blasphemies against God to blaspheme his name and his tabernacle, that is, those who dwell in heaven. It was also given to him to make war with the saints and to overcome them. And, and authority over every tribe and people and tongue and nation was given to him. All who dwell on the earth will worship him. Everyone whose name has not been written from the foundation of the world in the book of life of the Lamb who has been slain. If anyone has an ear, let him hear. If anyone is destined for captivity, to captivity he goes. If anyone kills, better, is to be killed with a sword, with a sword he must be killed. Here is the perseverance and the faith of the saints. That all sounds weird. It all sounds a little challenging. In fact, if it's the first time that you've been here, Uh, We've been in the book of Revelation for like 10 months now, and I knew Revelation 13 was coming, and well, I'm sorry you're here today. (laughs) I believe what we have here in apocalyptic imagery is Satan's game plan at the end of time. Final desperate attempts to win the cosmic war in which he has been engaged since the beginning of creation. Remember, he knows when he's cast out of heaven, he knows his time is short and she pulls out all of the stops. This is how he will make war on the rest of her children. That is those who hold the testimony of Jesus. And I'm suggesting that it could be you. I know we don't like to hear that. I know that we think that we live in a bubble here in, in, in the United States. There will be no bubbles. Today, we meet a rather important player in this final conflict. By comparing this passage with s- several others, we arrive at the conclusion uh, that, uh, uh, of many uh, that understand this to be the Antichrist. Again, perhaps you've heard that name before. It is clear he is not Satan, but rather he is a man empowered by Satan. He seems to be the embodiment, the incarnation of evil, if you will. Uh, further don't miss the in, don't miss this the intentional way that the dragon the antichrist and the false prophet together form what we call the unholy trinity the biblical holy trinity of course is god the father god the son and god the holy spirit here the dragon will it will be a, a parody he will imitate the father as he's always wanted to be god set himself up as God, the Antichrist will imitate the Son, Jesus, attempting to emulate his works and receive the adoration of those who dwell on the earth, and the false prophet who seeks to point point people to the Antichrist will imitate the Holy Spirit, whose role it is to point people to Jesus. This is all a woeful attempt to imitate the Trinity, a parody. And yet, incredibly, this was absolutely amazing to me as I did the study this week. This is amazing. They will successfully deceive the nations and gain their worship. Do you understand the people across our world today will hear the gospel, will hear the truth about the true God, how he sent his son Jesus to die on the cross for sinners and they ho-hum it or they uh, they don't believe it, they deny it. But when this one who is the enemy of their souls does the same thing, they will believe. And he will destroy them. He will gain their worship. This is very troubling. The outline of the text will go like this. The the beast rises from the sea. In those first few verses, we're going to see the beast's work permitted by God. This will be an encouragement, you see. I could title this, The Sovereignty of God Even Over the Beast. While it will seem that he's in worldwide charge, he will not be. Which leads to the last one, the believer's response to the beast. And that will honestly, I'm going to warn you right now, that's going to be a hard one. Last verse of chapter 12, said the dragon was enraged because he couldn't get to the woman. So he um, went off to make war with her children. He stands on the seashore, implying he is the one who calls forth this beast Now, we've seen this beast before back in chapter 11 when we learned about the two witnesses. I won't rehash that at this point. But in verse 7, when they, the witnesses, had finished their testimony, the beast, that comes up out of the abyss. Here we see that he comes out of the sea, probably symbolically the same place. And we remember that throughout Scripture, the sea is a place of chaos and and evil. Who knows what looks beneath? For example, it is there that Leviathan, the great sea monster, probably another name for Satan, um, dwells. Again, this description is all apocalyptic literature, uh, apocalyptic imagery. Don't try to figure out the s- specific components. Just see the hideous and evil nature of the picture that John is painting. Look at the description of this beast. He seems to rise slowly from the sea so that you get this picture just a little bit, this horrible picture, just a little bit at a time. First, we see his horns and his head. He his Ten horns and seven heads, and on his horns are ten diadems or crowns, which is a rather curious placement on the horns, not on the heads." Now, you may remember when we were first introduced to the dragon, who is Satan, back in chapter 12, he was also described as having seven heads and ten horns, and on his heads were seven diadems. So there is some similarity, but they're a bit different. With the beast, the horns are mentioned first, and the diadems are on the horns. Why? What is that about? With with Satan, the dragon, the horns are on his head, which speaks of his authority and and worldwide ability to rule, but here, um, the horns are mentioned first with the ten Diadems speak of, well, his great strength, perhaps as a military or political ruler, some surmise. Some have suggested that this beast is an empire, which makes some sense when you uh, compare it to other passages that are similar to this. But the masculine pronouns, and further, when we compare this with the other important passages on this Antichrist, he's clearly a man, an evil man, empowered by Satan, with great power again at the end of time. Now the, now, the only place the Antichrist by that name is mentioned is in the letters of John, who you know, also wrote the book of Revelation. In, in those letters, Antichrist usually refer to false teachers. Anybody that comes teaching something falsely about Christ is Antichrist. And yet there's this curious reference in 1 John chapter 2 that says this, "'Children, it is the last hour, and just as you heard that Antichrist is coming.'" You, you, you heard that. Here's what I want you to notice. There was apparently a developed teaching that there was an Antichrist in the future who was to come. John doesn't deny that. Yes, there were already the spirit of Antichrist, false teachers out there, but there is an Antichrist t- to come. Paul also mentions this coming wicked leader in 2 Thessalonians. The context of that book is uh, rather interesting. It's fairly early in Paul's um, ministry. He started the church uh, in Thessalonica during his second missionary journey and he wrote this letter to them about 50, 51 A.D. So this is years, years, years before Revelation was written. He, he wanted to encourage, here's his purpose, he wanted to encourage persecuted believers to remain faithful. Does that sound familiar? He also wants to correct some misunderstandings about the return of Christ. Apparently, there was some message or letter that they had received suggesting that the day of the Lord, the return of Christ, had already happened. Jesus has already come. What are we going to do now? So he writes in chapter 2, long passage, We'll look at it. Now we request you, brothers, with regard to the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ and our gathering together to Him, that you not be quickly shaken from your composure or be disturbed either by a spirit or a message or a letter, as if from us, to the effect that the day of the Lord, that is His coming, has has come. Let no one in any way deceive you, for it, the day of the Lord, the return of Christ, will not come unless the apostasy, that is a great falling away, I won't explain that, comes first, and the man of lawlessness, here it is, the man of lawlessness is revealed, the son of destruction, who opposes and exalts himself above every so-called God or object of worship, so that he takes his seat in the temple, displaying himself as being God. That's what he's always wanted to do, you see. Do you remember that? While I was with you, I was telling you these things. And you know what restrains him now, so that in his time, he will be revealed when it's time, for the mystery of lawlessness is already at work. Just like the spirit of Antichrist are already here, the mystery of lawlessness is already at work. Only he who now restrains will do so until he is taken out of the way. Then that lawless one, the Antichrist, the man of lawlessness, will be revealed. He's coming, whom the Lord will slay with the breath of his mouth and bring to an end by the appearance of His coming. That is... This, law, uh, this lawless one, the one who is coming, is in accord with the activity of Satan, with all powers and signs and false wonders. Again, long passage, it won't take time to teach it all. I just want you to notice a few thoughts. Most everyone agrees that uh, uh, this one that John is talking about in Revelation uh, 13 is this man of lawlessness. It's interesting to note that Paul um, says, that the day of the Lord, the return of Christ, has not yet happened because of the man of lawlessness, the Antichrist, must be revealed first, and he hasn't, so he tells the Thessalonian church, I find this interesting, he tells the church, listen, it it hasn't happened because you haven't seen the Antichrist yet. Oh, I thought we weren't going to see the Antichrist, I thought we're going to be out of here. Maybe not. Maybe not. By the way, notice what the man of lawlessness does. He opposes and exalts himself above every so-called god or object of worship so that he takes a seat in the temple Whatever that is, there's not a temple now. Maybe the Temple Mount, maybe some future temple, don't know. Displays himself as being God. This is Satan's goal. It's always been his goal to be worshipped as God. In fact, we find, I want to say this very gently, that the worship of all false gods, you find behind it Satan. You find behind, it's what Paul says in 1 Corinthians, you find behind it demons because there's only one true and living God. So when Jesus returns in Revelation 19 after Revelation 13, the man of lawlessness, empowered by Satan, will be destroyed. And don't miss, Paul said, don't you remember that I taught you these things? The point is, there was this developed teaching. The Antichrist is coming. It's what I'm trying to teach you about from Revelation 13. The Antichrist is coming. And Revelation 13 prophetically describes it. But where did Paul... And where did John get these ideas from? Well, certainly from divine inspiration, but there, are there Old Testament passages that speak of this event? Glad you asked. Absolutely. In the second half of the book of Daniel, the prophetic sessions of the book, we hear a lot about this evil one to come. In Daniel chapter 7, says specifically, look at it, another long passage. Daniel said, I was looking in my vision by night, and behold, the four winds of heaven were stirring up the great sea, and four great beasts were coming up from the sea. That sounds familiar. Different, though, from one another. The first was like a lion, and what, he, what Daniel sees here are the four coming kingdoms. Let me tell them to you. The first was like a lion, and he had the wings of an eagle. I kept looking until its wings were plucked, and he was lifted up from the ground and made to stand on two feet like a man, and the human mind was also given to it. That's the empire of Babylon. And behold, another beast, a second one resembling a bear. This was the Medo-Persian empire. And it was raised up on one side, and three ribs were in its mouth between its teeth. And thus they said to it, Arise, devour much meat. And after this, I kept looking. And behold, another one like a leopard. This is the third kingdom. This is the Grecian kingdom. Remember Alexander the Great, how fast he was, which had on his back four wings of a bird. And the beast also had four heads. That's interesting. Four heads plus the other three heads makes, huh, seven heads. And dominion was given to it. After this, it kept looking in the night visions, and behold, a fourth beast. This is the Roman Empire, dreadful and terrifying and extremely strong. And it had large iron teeth. It devoured and crushed and trampled down the remainder with its feet. And it was different from all the beasts that were before it. And it had ten horns. While I was contemplating the horns, behold, another horn, a little one, came up among them, and three of the first horns were pulled out by the roots before it. And behold, this horn possessed eyes like the eyes of a man, and mouths uttering great boasts. I know, that's a long, very weird passage. I'm not going to take the time to teach you, but I want you to notice at this point is verse 8, which speaks of a little horn coming up and displacing three of the ten horns on the fourth beast. We're going to find out in chapter 17 of Revelation that these are ten kings. And, and, and this horn will utter great boasts. Further, later in this chapter, we find this horn waging war. This one I want you to get. We find this horn waging war with the saints and overpowering them. Most agree, this is referring to the coming Antichrist at the end of time. Look at Daniel chapter 7. Again, the end of the chapter. He, this horn, will speak out against the Most High and wear down the saints of the Highest One. And He will intend to make alterations in time and in law. And they will be given into His hand for a time, times and a half time. We've seen that, haven't we? But the court, that's the court of God, will, be, will sit for judgment and His dominion, the horns the dominion, will be taken away, annihilated, and destroyed forever. Then the sovereignty, dominion, and the greatness of all the kingdoms under the whole heaven will be given to the people of the saints of the highest one. His kingdom will be an everlasting kingdom, and all the dominions will serve and obey Him as its rightful ruler. Once He is put down, the Antichrist. All that to say this these ideas of which John writes through these visions are not new, they were spoken of in Daniel. Over 500 years before Jesus was born and almost 600 years before this, the book of Revelation was written. Jesus spoke of it in Matthew 24. Paul, we saw, wrote about it. John wrote about it in his letters. This was widely held in the earliest days of the church. So here's the point. This apocalyptic literature is a bit weird. It's a bit strange to us. It was not to them, and it is entirely consistent. I want you to understand that this is one book. Every once in a while, people that are opposed to this book, I hear them say something silly like, um, you know, there are all kinds of contradictions in the Bible. I love when they say that. I give them the Bible and say, could you show me one? Well, I don't really know. I've just always heard. Because there aren't any. It is entirely consistent. Very quickly then, look at the rest of the description of the beast coming from the sea. On his head were blasphemous names. Meaning, he is the embodiment of evil, the incarnation of the dragon, in a sense, setting himself up as God with great boasts. And so, on his heads were names of blasphemy. This is undoubtedly is a reference to the Roman gods at this time. Remember, the original readers were 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 were, were uh, those in the Roman Empire, and the Roman emperors at this time would take on divine names belonging only to God, especially Domitian who was the emperor when John wrote, who took on the name, our Lord and God. Blasphemy. Look at the description verse 2. It should sound familiar. And the beast, which I saw, was like a leopard, and his feet were like those of a bear, and his mouth, like the mouth of a lion. Huh. A leopard, a bear, and a lion. In Daniel, the first three of those four kingdoms, he saw in his vision, Babylon, Medo-Persia, and Greece were represented by these animals, but here the beast looks like uh, here the beast looks like all these animals combined. Plus, he has the horns of the fourth kingdom, Rome. The, let me get my page turned. The point is, this worldwide empire that he commands will be the culmination and combination of all the empires which come before, specifically in their evil opposition to God. You can actually throw in there any evil empire that exists. Go ahead and name one from the 1900s. Nazi Germany. Communist Stalin and, and, and Lenin or Mao. Throw those evil opposed to God empires in there. He will be the combination of all of them. We notice the dragon will give him his power and his throne and great authority to rule the world. Again, a parody of God giving his son a throne and authority to rule the world. Verses 3 and 4, we see another horrible imitation, this time of Jesus. John looks and sees... One of the seven heads of the beast as if it had been slain and his fatal wound was healed. The wording is quite similar to chapter 5, verse 6. When John turned to to see the lion, remember, of the tribe of Judah, and what did he see? A lamb standing as if slain. Same word. This, of course, was the crucified and resurrected Christ. Here Satan through the Antichrist Imitates or parodies the death and a resurrection of Jesus. Don't miss it, and people will believe it. I want you to understand that Jesus is the true Son of God, the true Lamb of God slain for the sins of the world, who alone was resurrected. Incredibly, most don't believe that they reject the truth of the gospel. But here, just as incredibly, when the unbelieving world sees this, they are amazed. And they follow the beast. What's wrong with the true story of death and resurrection for sinners? They are amazed. They follow the beast. They worship the dragon because it gives authority to the beast and they worship the beast. Further, they proclaim the beast, uh, of the beast, words in scripture reserved only for God alone. Who is like the beast and who is able to wage war against him? Who indeed they're about to find out because there is only one true and living God. Brings us quickly to our second point, and I do mean quickly, I'm almost done. Give me a couple more minutes. The beast's works are permitted by God. Four times in these verses, we see what most call divine passes. That is, these were given by God to the beast to do these things. God permitted. He didn't promote He permitted these things to happen. Because if God did not permit them, they would not happen, you understand. Because God is sovereign over all of history. First, He is given a mouth speaking arrogant words and blasphemies. In other words, He's permitted by God for a time to do these things. And we find in verse 6, these blasphemies were directed against God, against His name, which is encapsulates all that he is, and against his tabernacle, that is, those with whom God dwells, that is, his people. He's given authority to act for 42 months. I want you to notice that is a limited time, because God grants it, and there is a time frame given. Do you think this would have been encouraging to people suffering persecution when they receive this letter? It's only for a time. Further, verse 7, a troubling verse. He's given the ability to make war with the saints and to overcome them. So what do we do about that? What what do we do do about that? We remember in Daniel chapter 7, the Antichrist speaks out against God and overcomes the saints. Here he makes war and overcomes them, presumably by killing them. And as a result, he gains full authority over every tribe and people and tongue and nation. And we've seen that list before. (coughs) People coming to faith in Christ from every people group. But here, incredibly, from every people group, people will come to worship the beast. Verse 8. All who dwell on the earth, who's going to worship the beast? All who dwell on on the earth, everyone whose name has not been written From the foundation of the world in the book of life of the Lamb who has been slain. I want you to understand something. God has a book. And written in the book are the names of his people. Those who have trusted in the Lamb of God. The true one slain for the sins of his people. Some question about from the foundation of the world, does it refer to the names written from the foundation of the world? Chapter 17 says that. Others suggest that it is um, is that the Lamb was slain from the foundation of the world. I think it's actually that. Uh, That the Lamb slain from the foundation of the world. In other words, it was God's plan. Listen very carefully. It was God's plan before creation that His Son would die for you. You say, wait, 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 wait just a minute. If God knew when he created that we would rebel and it would cost the life of his son, why would he create? Because he knew you and he loved you. That's why. Very quickly, our third point, which is actually our conclusion, the response of believers to the beast in verses 9 and 10. So again, I ask the question, so, okay. Okay. What do we do about this, God? If you're right, and the church is present during this tribulation period, what are we supposed to do? I mean, it seems clear that there are at least some believers present in chapter 13. And as I've suggested before, we certainly haven't seen any place in the book of Revelation that believers are out of here. So if believers are here, and clearly they are, what should we do? He who has an ear to hear, let him hear. And it's very, very hard. Are you ready? If anyone is destined for captivity, to captivity he goes. God's plan will be carried out. Remember the divine passage of the previous verses. God gives to the beast the ability to do what he will do, all according to God's plan. So if you are destined for captivity, to captivity you will go you're destined for persecution or opposition or for death, to death you will go. You see, if anyone is to be killed with a sword, with the sword, he must be killed. Do you, do you see? God's plan from the beginning of time is unfolding. It will be carried out. But, but remember, we overcome e- the evil one, just like our Savior did, by the blood of the Lamb. We, we do not love our, points even, uh, love our lives even to the point of death. Why? Because the beast does not win the war. And so ours is to submit to the plan of God. Ours is not to oppose God's plan. He's the one in charge here. Ours is to be faithful and live and share the gospel and let come what may. Here, you see, is the perseverance of the saints. Let me stop right there and suggest. We're Americans. We, we, we love our freedoms. And we think, okay, if I'm here and the Antichrist is revealed, we're going to get in our little conclaves. And th- this is the land of the Second Amendment. I've got my AK. I've got my AR. Let them come and get me. That's not what we do. We don't fight with that sword. Because if you are destined to die by the sword, by the sword you will die but we don't love our lives to the point of death. We love our God. Our response is to fight not with, this, with physical swords. Our response is not to take up the sword, but to take up the sword of the spirit, which is the word of God. Our response is to fight with the gospel of Jesus Christ and let come what may. Are you ready to do that? Let's stand for prayer. Father, those are very hard words. I mean, we're reading about the unfolding of the end of time and the end of this cosmic war and Satan will do his best to uh, destroy not just Christians, he hates the world, anyone that's created in the image of God. This is God's creation. He hates it. And he wants to destroy it. He wants to destroy believers and unbelievers alike, but He especially hates us. And so He's going to come for us. He wants to make war with the the children of the woman. That is, the the mother of the Messiah. He hates us. So what do we do? Commit ourselves to you, body and soul. We understand that this is all your plan. We submit ourselves to whatever it is that you have for us. And we will be people of truth. We will be people of the gospel of Jesus Christ. Because our desire is to bring as many people as we can with us. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.